This episode of New Politics was recorded on the 19th of March, 2021, and produced on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast. In this episode, the March for Justice takes hold all around Australia, the mismanagement of the COVID-19 vaccinations continues, and the massive landslide victory for the Labor Party in Western Australia. What does this mean for federal politics? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, Olympic trampolinist and gentleman cat burglar. 2020 might have been the year of the pandemic, but this year is quickly becoming the year of the feminist revolution. It started off with the announcement of Grace Tame as the Australian of the Year in January, and she's the activist for survivors of sexual assault. There were the allegations of a sexual assault on Brittany Higgins by a Liberal Party staffer in Parliament House, and there have been rape allegations against a senior federal government minister. In response, these actions culminated in the recent March for Justice campaign, which resulted in a series of protests all across Australia, calling for the end of sexism, misogyny, dangerous workplace cultures, and the lack of equality in politics in the community. Over 100,000 people attended these events in 40 locations, including key federal opposition MPs, Tanya Plibersek, Penny Wong, Christina Keneally, Anthony Albanese, Richard Miles, the Greens, and some coalition government MPs, but there were also many MPs who were missing, the entire cabinet and the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. And perhaps Morrison is irrelevant to the process, especially after he said this. This is a vibrant liberal democracy, Mr Speaker. Not far from here, such marches, even now, are being met with bullets. But not here in this country, Mr Speaker. Not here in this country. This is a triumph of democracy when we see these things take place. Morrison refused to address the rally in Canberra, insisting that he meets with a small delegation in private and behind closed doors. Now, I'm not sure how tone-deaf Morrison is, but that sounds like the classic actions of a rapist. And the organisers of the rallies insisted Morrison come out to meet them. Here's Janine Hendry, one of the organisers of March for Justice, speaking about the matter. I think it's really quite disrespectful to the women whose voices need to be heard to have a meeting with our Prime Minister behind closed doors. I have invited the Prime Minister, as I have all other sitting members of Parliament, to come and march with us, to come and listen to our voices. I don't think it's really a big ask that, you know, we've come to Canberra. I, I think the, the Prime Minister, if he really uh, cared about women, really cared about our voices, that he couldn't open the door, walk across the forecourt and come and listen to us. Morrison's refusals are playing to his base. Prime Ministers in the past have attended rallies to face the music from the hostile crowds, John Howard, Bob Hawke, Robert Menzies. But Morrison is a Prime Minister who doesn't like to lose control of the agenda. A private meeting where Morrison can manipulate the agenda and then deny the commentary of the meeting in the media, that's how Morrison operates. The organisers of March for Justice rightly told Morrison to get stuffed. There was a lot of uh, advice to Janine Henry that a small delegation wouldn't represent every single woman marching and that the message could only be delivered uh, or in large numbers. I think that's right. Without questioning the motives of, of the small delegation, the message would have been diluted and filtered, manipulated and changed. And there was a lot of pressure put on them, I'm sure, to do that. 
but every woman who attended wanted to have their voice heard as part of the collective. And your point that other prime ministers went out and faced angry crowds, John Howard loved it. Bob Menzies loved it. I don't know that Bob Hawke loved it because he was much more of the school of he wanted to be loved by everybody. But Bob Hawke recognised that to be loved by everybody, he had to listen to everybody and hear everybody and, and respond to everybody. So he went out, although I think he did enjoy the argy-bargy of debate. More recent prime ministers, say since 2013, have enjoyed talking to the crowd less. I think that's fair to say. And it, it shows the, a lack of courage that when he was rebuffed for his private meeting, suddenly he was too busy to go out and address the 100,000 women. And even though it would have been awful, it might have raised his uh, personal stakes a little. He's not a great speaker, though, so maybe they recognised that things could have gotten a lot worse. Well, this is a key moment in Australian political history, and it's events like these that can have a dramatic influence over the direction of politics. And there are events that don't happen very often, and it's usually caused by a culmination of dissatisfaction. The political leaders are not doing enough to address the concerns of the electorate. And in this case, the many women of Australia have said enough is enough. Doing nothing is not going to work anymore for political leaders. Now, it's obvious that Morrison hasn't got any time at all for the women's movement, and He's trying to respond to all of these events politically and hoping that they'll all just go away and disappear. But it's part of the Prime Minister's job to actually go out there and face a hostile crowd. It's not just a matter of turning up when it suits him or where there's an issue that he feels comfortable about. This is an issue that's far too important for the Prime Minister just to hide up and be holed up in his office. He should have gone out to face the crowd. And it's just another example of how inadequate he actually is. I've given up predicting electoral results, but I can't see this helping him gain on his very tiny majority. A lot of right-wing women, particularly moderate right-wing women, agreed with the march and, and turned up. Uh, Lucy Turnbull springs to mind, but there were a lot of other less well-known uh, women who who are rightly appalled at how things are going. And of course, it was Brittany Higgins from the Liberal Party who inadvertently, I think, started this. It's not a political issue that he's... It's a universal issue that transcends the university politics that the government tends to thrive in. It's much more important. And and you're exactly right. It shows his weakness as a leader, his weakness as a prime minister, his weakness as a politician, his weakness as a manager, his weakness as a human being. And the Bullets references that he made in Parliament trying to correlate between the protests that were being made all across Australia with the events in Myanmar where street protesters are currently being shot and killed by government forces... It was totally irresponsible. It was unnecessary, ill-informed, and it sounded absolutely ridiculous. And it's not entirely clear what Morrison was trying to do here. Was he being deliberately provocative to inflame the hostility even further? Was he just being incredibly tone-deaf and not understanding the messaging that he was sending out? Was he suggesting it as a threat to the process, as if to say, well, you're lucky I didn't shoot you today like they do in most other countries? Now, we, we know that Morrison carefully has 
assesses the political opportunities and creates them to his own advantage. But was he just directing this messaging to his base political supporters or, or is the base much larger than we think it is? I think it was actually ill-judged. I think he was trying for that attitude of, you know, oh, you, you people don't get it, that type of thing. In some countries, they shoot protesters, think how lucky you are, without really recognising that it's a threat or that it could be perceived as a threat. I think that came much later uh, when he realised. I doubt that he really wants to shoot protesters, but also suspect that he wouldn't stop it if that was the advice that came through. Bob Askin, New South Wales Premier, who, when confronted with anti-Vietnam War protesters, said, run over the bastards, you know, and that was half in jest. But if the driver had accelerated... I don't know that Askin would have been terribly upset or pondered on the power of his words to do such damage. Yeah, Morrison cracked under the pressure, said something that he hadn't thought through, said something that was meant to belittle protesters. Uh, it's sort of a projection, too, in that he was projecting his own privilege onto the protesters' privilege. Yes, in Australia, we tend not to shoot protesters. Chifley in '46 sends the troops in to the striking miners. And of course, Queensland has a long tradition under Joe Bjorki-Peterson of heavy-handed protest management, shall we say. Um, so does New South Wales, so does Victoria. Having said that, it's been many years since shots have been fired, which is a good thing. But I, I think that he was rattled. I think that he was seeing his all his strategies that at least superficially saw him as the good bloke come crumbling down. He doesn't like being called misogynist. He doesn't like being called weak. Uh, and all of this was demonstrated. And I don't know how he comes back from it. He, he might. There might be a way that he can make those types of amends. I don't think it'll be a quick turnaround, which is the other specialty he has, trying for the quick turnaround. The March for Justice campaign, it was a brilliant event. It was very well coordinated, very well organised. It was succinct, it was sharp, had an undiluted message, it was very well targeted, and it scored all the political points that it needed to score at this particular point of time. So that's all good news for now. But the issue from now is, well, what's the follow-up? How does this keep bubbling along as an issue? But I've got a feeling that this is a big issue that is just not going to disappear overnight, which is what the government would like, of course. But for me, it also gets down to how unaware the government is on this issue. On the same day as the March for Justice campaign, the Attorney General, Christian Porter, he launched a defamation case against the ABC and the journalist Louise Milligan. And that was that case is going to be based around the Four Corners episode that the ABC aired a few weeks ago relating to rape allegations and... Christian Porter's womanising during his time at university and in politics. Now, of, of course, anyone has got a right to launch a defamation case against anyone else that they choose to and at any time that they wish to as well. But of all days, Porter decides that this is the best day to launch a defamation case over rape allegations. It's going to go nowhere. He's been accused of a crime and until that goes to to some kind of trial or inquiry and he's cleared, it's not defamation. Otherwise, every shoplifter and car thief and could, could sue the police for defamation 
before the trial. If they had the uh, inquiry and he was found innocent, especially if he was found innocent due to evidence that could reasonably be seen to be available by Louise Milligan and the ABC, then yes, then there's a case to answer for defamation. But there hasn't been any of that. So at the moment, he is under a cloud. Well, he is under a cloud, but the other consideration is that he's not just some ordinary member of the public or someone else who decides the time and the place to launch a defamation case. He's actually the Attorney General, and that's the most senior law officer in Australia. He's actually higher than the Chief Justice of the High Court. And also, launching a defamation case, it's not like you just sit back and then all of a sudden it all happens. It's actually a lot of work to launch defamation proceedings. Christian Porter is on leave at the moment up until March the 31st, but on his return, he's going to be offloading most of his other work to other ministers so that he can focus on this defamation case. The Solicitor General, they've been asked to adjudicate which areas of Porter's job might present a conflict of interest, and that's in consideration of the fact that he's got the carriage of the Sex Discrimination Act, national consent laws, the proposed Integrity Commission, and also he's got carriage of defamation law in Australia. Now, I'd say that that's a conflict of interest on everything. And you're left wondering, well, why on earth is he still in his position? He should have resigned by now. And if that wasn't going to happen, he should have been sacked by Scott Morrison. Really, he should have resigned after the initial Four Corners report. He would have avoided a lot of needless pain, a lot of needless pain. He's in an untenable position. We discussed this last podcast. Even if he's innocent, but till we have a trial or inquiry in which he is presumed innocent and then proved to have done wrong or not, and until that is cleared up, there will be forever a cloud over his head. Why he doesn't want that cleared out is puzzling. An innocent person would want the inquiry and want to spend their time getting together their case to show that they didn't do it. And and the system is stacked in favour of the innocent when it's done properly. It's not always stacked in favour of the innocent, of course. Mm. But if he's genuinely innocent, that's fine. And then we can look for the real perpetrator. So during the first three months of this year, there has been a high focus on sexual assaults within Parliament, within the community. It's been an issue that's been highlighted and the government's response has been quite woeful. There's all of those issues. It's the the fact that Scott Morrison has just been doing as much as possible to keep the Attorney-General in his position. Politically, he should have been forced to resign on, on the first day. Now, all of these factors... They've dented the polling for the Liberal National Party. And, of course, we have to provide the usual caveat that these are polls. And after the last election, they got them horribly wrong. But it's the only evidence that we've got at this stage. Currently, it's down to 48% in the most recent news poll on the two-party preferred voting process. And Morrison's approval rating is down to 56%. Now, that's still pretty high, but 48% for the two-party preferred vote, that's an election-losing position for the coalition. So there's been all of these factors that have been coming into play. So they're on the nose politically right at this stage, and it doesn't mean that, therefore, they'll lose the next election. But could March the 15th and the March for Justice campaign, could that be seen as a turning point in politics? And how will this whole process affect the next election as well and how will it how will it affect the lead up to the next election which could happen towards the end of 
this year, most definitely in 2022. Support for Scott Morrison within the party. He's loathed by sections of his of the Liberal Party and not as much as the Labor Party loathed Kevin Rudd when he was Prime Minister, Who, but he was actually rolled when he had 52% of the two-party preferred vote back in 2010. There's all of these other issues that come into play, the Melbourne-Sydney divide within the Liberal Party. I've noticed that Josh Frydenberg has been quite cheery and quite happy over the past week or two. So it's hard to see exactly how all of this is going to pan out, but What's the most likely outcome to arise from all of these events? I'm wondering if his ego would sustain him losing an election and that he will step down. And, of course, the other thing, too, is that the party may want him gone and see him as electoral poison. We'll be talking a little bit later about Western Australia, but that's a that's a warning for Liberal parties right around the country, except maybe New South Wales. Certainly, Victoria... Well, Queensland has already had its hammering. South Australia, Marshall government uh, is struggling somewhat. And Tasmania is struggling somewhat. The most corrupt and unfit of them all, which is New South Wales, seems to be going strongly. But again, there's still two and a half years till the next election. And so I'm not going to comment any further. It wouldn't surprise me if Scott Morrison stood down and was replaced by some kind of candidate of his choosing. It wouldn't surprise me if they find the two-thirds party room votes to put in someone else, and I'm sure Josh Frydenberg has been counting the numbers and looking at the positive press he's been able to garner. I'm sure Peter Dutton always has his eye on these things. And, of course, we don't know what pork barrelling and rorts they've brought in for strategy to win the next election, although I suspect that that has become less effective since it's been shown that that's how they work. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, the mismanagement of the COVID-19 vaccination program continues and it's going to create a lot of political headaches for this government. Something good comes with the bad A song's never just sad There's hope, there's a silver line Show me my silver line Show me my silver line COVID-19 vaccination rollout is continuing to have problems. It's way behind schedule and the target of 4 million vaccinations by the end of March is just not going to happen. It's not even going to come close. As of today, there have been 203,000 vaccinations administered and that's around 10% of where it needed to be if that target of 4 million was going to be achieved by the end of March. The Prime Minister, the Health Minister, the Chief Medical Officer have consistently stated that the vaccine program was going to be completed by October 2021. And that was for the entire Australian population of 25 million people. But now they're backtracking on pretty much everything. Greg Hunt is asserting that there are no issues, no problems at all with the online vaccination booking system. And that collapsed on the day that it was launched. And Morrison is now claiming that there has never been an October deadline and everyone else has got it wrong except for him. So, Prime Minister, yesterday uh, you said everyone would be vaccinated by October. And you said that on television. Uh, today, you're now saying no, no, that they're you're not? Missing, you're misunderstanding me. 
The first dose will be administered by the end of October. That's what I meant. So when are you going to be honest with people uh, as, to, as right to how now. delayed the vaccine rollout is? Because the information that you've been giving has not been consistent on no, this. The government has totally mismanaged the rollout of the vaccination program. They've over-promised and under-delivered, and now this is going to cause many political problems for Scott Morrison. There is that adage that if you can't manage your own party, you cannot manage the country. But in Morrison's case, I think we might have to update that. If you cannot manage the coronavirus crisis, you are not going to manage to win the next election. Donald Trump lost over his management of coronavirus. It's quite possible, and a lot of left-wing pundits in the States have said Donald Trump would likely have won the last election if he had managed the pandemic better. The numbers in Australia compared to the numbers in the United States, particularly if we look at deaths, are completely different. We're still affected by pandemic management. The CBD in Sydney is still quiet. It's it's a bit more lively than it was, but it's still very quiet. I was in there the other day. The economy's contraction has been part of their COVID management. And they haven't really been able to maintain the economy in the way that Kevin Rudd was during the GFC. If you walk through shopping malls or down main streets, there's a lot of for rent signs. There's a lot of closing down sales. We can point to a whole range of factors, but COVID management has been a part of that. They needed to get it right, and they haven't. And the rollout of the vaccine has been terribly inefficient. I know frontline workers in hospitals. Prince of Wales had to go to Westmead to get their vaccination. Now, I know that some of this is due to the way that the vaccines have to be stored, etc., it seemed ridiculous to a lot of the workers there that they had to go from one major teaching hospital to another major teaching hospital essentially at the other end of the city, the metropolitan area, to get their vaccinations. That type of logistics aside, there's only 40,000 doses. We need something like 6 to 8 million, I think, or might even be up to 10 million, to start to think about herd immunity and effective herd immunity in the country. As a result, this stuff is going to play badly. I think Greg Hunt has not managed it well. I think, too, that the government has wanted to do it in the Trump way, in that you let the virus play out and that it sorts itself out and the economy can keep going, which was the New South Wales approach. Well, I've always been a great believer that with all of these programs, you have to try them out before commenting. And that's what I did a couple of days ago. The vaccination booking system that was launched on Wednesday, that was just two days ago. Initially, it was really hard to get onto, had a lot of outages, couldn't get into the system at all. But eventually, I got onto the system and checked it all out. I've got to say, it's a very confusing process. I've determined that you and I, David, we are in the phase 2A category. That's commencing in May 2021. So obviously, political journalism and commentary is a low-grade category, so we'll have to wait a little bit longer. So it's been a little bit confusing, but it's actually in phase 1B at the moment. I don't know why you wouldn't start at 1A, but the people that actually are in category 1A, they've been told that they can get theirs now as well, even though we're in phase 1B. So that's a little bit confusing. And you cannot actually make a booking to have the vaccination at the moment because the vaccines, predominantly, they're not available anyway. And every time I tried to get to a particular 
area or, or booking, you would say, ring up your local doctor to find out what's happening. And of course, a lot of people were contacting their local doctor's surgery and pretty much most doctor's surgeries were being inundated on that first day. And then on the Thursday, which was just yesterday, everyone that rang up was told, well, we haven't got vaccines. We don't know when they're coming in. You can't make a booking now because we don't know what's happening. So it just seems like it's, a, it's been a monumental disaster so far. The lack of communication, the lack of clarity. The other thing that's, this isn't necessarily the government's fault per se, but the problems with the AstraZeneca vaccination in terms of the side effects. Now, it's been banned in six or eight countries because of the risk of severe blood clots. The rumour was is that Greg Hunt got his AstraZeneca and got cellulitis from it. He claimed that he'd cut his leg gardening, and that's where the cellulitis came from. I will take him as he, at his word, although we know that government ministers aren't always taken at his word. There's a lot of fear. People are in conversation. People are saying, you know, they don't know if they want AstraZeneca or not. Well, I can understand the government's behaviour and especially Greek hunts to cover up what actually happened to him. There needs to be confidence in the vaccine program. That's unquestionable. But, well, the minister ended up in hospital. So if it happened to him, what are the chances of it happening to anyone else? There have been 37 cases of blood clots in Europe. They've administered quite a few million uh, vaccines so far. So 37 out of the millions that have been administered so far. As, as far as a public health outcome is concerned, that's for those 37 people who had the blood clots, well, that's not good news for them. But as far as an overall public health outcome is concerned, that's not too bad. And it's within that statistical outcome that you would normally have for vaccines. So that's understandable. But there's other factors behind this. This is a government that always looks at the publicity and the promotional aspects of whatever it's doing. They look for a good media hit and good news spin story, or such as the release of the vaccination booking program. But then when they're hit with the reality, yeah. instead of owning up to it and just saying, look, this has been a problem, they just double down and completely fabricate what they've actually said in the past. And that's, as far as the public health outcome is concerned, that's not good enough either. Back in the pre-internet days where media was much more tightly controlled in a sense, you could claim I was misquoted and then release a statement clarifying your words. Now we have internet, the whole context of your of your statement can and is released. So it's much harder to talk about like a context. I think you're right. Greg Hunt probably was acting in the public interest by ensuring everybody he didn't get the cellulitis from AstraZeneca, even though it's a, it is a side effect. Drugs go onto the market with a higher percentage rate of more serious side effects, and it's all a virtue of risk management. Do we risk a potential 1% of people having a serious side effect, or do we work on the drug till we can take that down to nearly nothing? The way that the political information and media information has been managed, it, I guess it just shows the ethereal nature of contemporary politics. So up until March the 9th, that was just last week, Scott Morrison, Greg Hunt, the chief health officer as well, they've consistently said that the vaccine rollout is on track to be completed by October 
2021. There's never been any equivocation about that. It's all been, he's been very ad- adamant about that process and they have, just haven't deviated from all of that. And as you mentioned before, all of this information is available on the internet. You can find out what Scott Morrison or Greg Hunt or the Chief Health Officer said last week or the week before or what they said last year about the delivery of this vaccination program. I don't know. I'm, not, I'm just not sure whether just going back and saying, well, no, I never said that or you've completely misunderstood what I've said or misrepresented what I've said when people can so easily go back and check. I'm just not sure if that's a very good process for the body politic of this country. Everything you say online, and if you're talking to a journalist, it's going online, is there forever, even if they take it down. If <laughs> To our listeners, when you hear us pause and stumble and mumble, it's because we're making sure we're saying exactly what we mean so we make the correction later. We, we remember what it was we were correcting. I, my theory is that they, they learnt their craft at university where the stakes were much lower. And you could say, I never said that, I never, and there wasn't any real follow-up. But then they didn't learn further and into how to deal with the public properly, how to, how to deal with a far more nuanced and, and broader public and a, a public that actually did engage in a, in a much wider sense. And this is where it's all starting to fall down for them. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, the election result in Western Australia and what it means for federal politics. WA election resulted in a landslide victory for the Labor Party and it's the most one-sided election anywhere in Australian history, both in terms of the percentage of seats won and the final two-party preferred voting. Landslide victories are unusual in any form of politics, but achieving two consecutive landslides is unheard of. At the 2017 state election, Labor had a 9% swing towards it and picked up 20 seats. That's a massive event in itself. In this election, it had a further 13% swing and picked up an extra 11 seats and has also achieved control of its upper house for the first time ever. The counting is still going on, but it's likely that the Liberal Party will have only two seats in a parliament of 59 lower house seats. It has lost its status as the official opposition. That's been taken up by the National Party, which only won four seats in the election as well. And it now faces a long period of time in the political wilderness. The coronavirus pandemic is favouring incumbent governments all around the world, but this result is totally off the scale. All sides of politics do like to say that each state election is about state issues alone, but there have to be some indicators and lessons for the federal Liberal Party in this WA election result and also for the Labor Party as well. All state elections have a federal component. Certainly a popular federal government will bolster popular state government and vice versa. Often you'll find that a popular leader will help results in the other. I'm thinking of people like Neville Rann, 
probably was helped by Bob Hawke's first few years in terms of um, popularity. It can work the other way. Sometimes a state will vote against a popular incumbent premier or prime minister just because you have various state issues going on that the other party are seen to handle better. Yeah, and you know you have things like Queensland voting fairly consistently Labor since 1890 with the the Jobiocki Peterson anomaly, and yet at a federal level being fairly staunchly non-Labor. New South Wales again has had more Labor governments than uh, Liberal governments. Victoria, actually, all state governments have tended to Labor. Interestingly enough. State issues and federal issues do intertwine because of the the nature of the federation. A lot of state projects are funded federally. We have state departments of health funded by Medicare, which create all kinds of problems, of course. We have GST that goes straight into state coffers, which creates all kinds of problems. Uh, New South Wales and Victoria get less of the GST pie than the minor states. Whether this is fair or not is a debate for another podcast before, you know, everyone from other states, oh, you're from New South Wales, we know what you think. It's a bit more nuanced than that. Well, that's also the nature of the federation as well. But there must be some crossover between state and federal politics. Like it's exactly the same parties that run in most state, territory and federal election campaigns. So there'd be some crossover. We're not exactly sure how much, though. The WA election result, it was easily predicted. Anthony Green, he was calling the election less than one hour in, even... Zach Kirkup, the leader of the Liberal Party in WA, he was actually calling the elections two weeks earlier when he conceded that he couldn't win. Zach Kirkup, he seemed like a presentable leader, but the Liberal Party, for them to select a first-term 34-year-old MP as a leader just four months before the election, it was almost like an insult to the electorate, and I think the final results do reflect this. The interesting thing, the Liberal Party is no longer an official political party in Western Australia. They lost all their offices and cars. There's only two of them. As a political historian who has spent a lot of time studying the non-Labor side, it's somewhat upsetting. As a, I guess as a centre-left activist, you want to beat them, but it's, it's like Lex Luthor and Superman or Joker and Batman. You don't want to... You beat them completely and all the motivation's gone. <laughs> Well, I guess you do want it to be a fair game as well, but when you've got seats like Nedlands turning Labor, the seat of Nedlands, that's one of the most affluent seats in Australia. It's where people like Gina Reinhardt and Kerry Stokes reside as well. But you just know that when the Liberal Party is losing a seat like Nedlands, that the party's over pretty much. Yeah, there's no coming back. It'd be like losing uh, Kuyong in Melbourne or um, Wentworth in Sydney. You know, each party has 10 or 12 seats, both Labor and Liberal, 10 or 12 seats that you wouldn't think that they'd lose at all. Yet, here we are. And it, it's extraordinary. I've been saying for decades now that the Liberal Party is overdue for reform. And the Labor Party tend to split very publicly and violently. You know, 54, you had the DLP split out. 31, you had the United Australia Party split out. 17, you had the conscriptionists split out, for example, and that they were done in public and it was nasty and it was awful. The Liberal Party tends to be a bit more quiet and they just shuffle and represent. But neither party has really done so since the 1970s, really. The Liberal Party also are on that failed 
policy of, of neoliberalism that has had 30 years to work and, and still isn't, unless you're very rich. It works brilliantly. If you're, if you're a billionaire, neoliberalism works brilliantly. You trickle the money down, keeping most of it. As that class of billionaire is dying off, there is less vested interests holding it. And I think we might, and I, I'm not going to be held to this, I'm going to deny I've said it if it's wrong, we might be seeing the Liberal Party starting the reform where the, the neoliberal is kicked out. Well, you'd expect that as a mainstream party, the Liberal Party will return. We, we just have to look at what happened in 2012 and 20, between 2012 and 2015 in Queensland, where the Labor Party in Queensland, they were decimated at the 2012 election, down to seven seats in a parliament of 89, but they returned to government in 2015. So things can change pretty quickly. But to go from two seats to winning government, it, it's going to be pretty difficult. And Mark McGowan, he's been quite a successful politician, but he's not like Campbell Newman in Queensland, who burned his bridges pretty quickly up there. We're probably looking at a long-term return to mainstream policies for the Liberal Party. They might take this opportunity to reform themselves, to do things differently. Whatever it is, it's going to be a long, long term for them in opposition. There's also that advantage of having so many state MPs that can help out in the federal election campaign whenever that's going to be held. There's 53 seats for the Labor Party in the West Australian Parliament now, compared to just two for the Liberal Party. 52 seats for the Labor Party in the Queensland Parliament, compared to 34 seats for the LNP. And come election time for the Federal Labor Party, there'll be a lot of human resources and a lot of financial resources that they'll be able to swing over to the federal election campaign. And WA and Queensland, where federal Labor only holds 11 out of the 46 seats in those two states, you can imagine that this would provide quite a lot of assistance during the federal election campaign. And elections can be won from the smaller states, from Western Australia, from Queensland, from South Australia, from Tasmania. We've seen that in the past. You need a lot of seats, but I don't think the Liberal Party will lose the number of seats federally it did at a state level. The main message to come out of all of this is that good, competent leadership is good politics, and that usually has good consequences for the government of the day. There has also been that other message floating around that during the coronavirus pandemic, that everything favours the incumbent governments. But it's not just a case where the coronavirus just magically makes governments stay in office. They still have to display a high level of competence, diligence and leadership. And Mark McGowan displayed all of those attributes in Western Australia, whereas the Liberal Party didn't. The only other state election during the pandemic has been up in Queensland, in October last year, where the Palaszczuk government recorded a 4% swing towards it. Again, it was a government that displayed competence, diligence and leadership and was rewarded for it. In my opinion, this federal government is unravelling, it's complacent, it's laced with corruption, it's incompetent, it's ordinary, it's mismanaging so many programs such as the COVID vaccination program. Now, all of that didn't stop it from winning the 2019 federal election, but the differences between what the Labor Party does in office compared to what the Liberal government does federally and also in the New South Wales Liberal government, those differences are becoming more stark. Mm. I think so. I mean, I am looking forward to seeing a competent uh, Liberal Party where we can discuss policy 
and why this policy is good or bad or and look at both sides and see what you know who's going to benefit and who's not going to benefit and are the people benefiting actually good and you know even giving them credit from time to time for doing something good <laughs> we haven't been able to do that for a long time how many spots have we dropped in the world corruption index quite a few yeah, we have. Australia was rating as the third least corrupt country in the world in 2013. That's according to the Corruption Perception Index that's published by Transparency International. And now it's ranking at number 11. So that's a drop of eight places over the eight-year rule of the Liberal National Coalition. But I'm sure that that's some kind of weird coincidence. Who do we bribe to, to get back to the top? That's what we're asking. But but, but in else, yeah, it, it's terrible. And the state governments have normally been more corrupt because it makes a bit more sense, you know, developing and the control over gambling and things like that where the corruption is obvious. Uh, I'm not, and I'm not saying that, you know, it's good that the state governments corrupt, were corrupt over this thing. But the federal government was very hard to, to be corrupt partly because of the whole scope of it. But, you know, crooks will always find a way, and they've, they've found a way. Well, that is absolutely correct. But corruption has generally been relative to the amount of scrutiny that is placed upon those governments, and generally that's why you tend to find more corruption at a local council level. You know, who's mm. watching or who's paying attention to what goes on there? But at the state level, there tends to be less corruption of that traditional kind. There's... And that's because there's more attention to what goes on there and there's even less of that type of corruption at the federal level because that's where a lot of focus is is placed upon. But as you suggested, corruption will always find a way and that traditional kind of corruption at the state and federal level has been replaced with something far more obscene and far more sinister. It's almost like a new form of white-collar crime and a lot of it is being ignored. Yeah, it, it's with the gambling in New South Wales and the illegal casinos, the press would thunder against them in the morning. You know, these terrible illegal casinos that the police cannot find, yet we know are running. And of course, the, the whole editorial board would be there in the evening playing craps and roulette and blackjack and all of that and having a ball. Obviously, not all sections of the media are implicit in the corruption We've seen some excellent journalism over the last few weeks from the mainstream paper and from News Corp, but it does help it by presenting ScoMo as the, the daggy dad, the good bloke, presenting Peter Dutton working hard. All this type of stuff helps to entrench corruption. As we said earlier, things are changing, and I don't think it's going to be good for the Liberal Party. Well, we did refer to opinion polls before, and opinion polls are just like a little bit of a report card, but since 2019, we have actually had the real world results. So in West Australia on the weekend, we had a 13% swing towards the Labor Party. In the Queensland election last year, there was a 4% swing to Labor. Labor held the seat of Eden Monaro in the election last year. The ACT in Northern Territory elections they've been held by Labor as well as well as a three percent swing in the by-election of Groom last year so these are the real votes they're not opinion polls they're actually the votes that have been recorded in real elections and there has been a lot of talk within the media that Labor should just give up on the next election but the real world situation suggests that the media is in a bit of a fantasy land the 
media has been riding shotgun for the LNP for a long, long time, but federal Labor might be flying under the radar a little bit. Every underdog always says there's only one poll that counts, and in many ways that's absolutely true till you get to nervous party rooms. <laughs> Anything can happen. We could see another three years of the current government. We could see them wipe down to one or two seats nationally, or probably more likely one or two seats per state, six or eight seats nationally. I, I'm, I'm not prepared to, to say too much more at the moment because I don't know. And of course, we've pointed out the issues with Labor and them getting their message through and is Anthony really the right person for the job at the moment? Has his time passed, etc., etc.? All of these are factors that have to be considered. It does get back to what we were talking about before. Coronavirus is a factor, but it's not the only factor. Competent governments are being rewarded, and we haven't actually had the test of an incompetent government at the ballot box yet. The federal government has botched the management of the vaccination program so far, and my feeling is that no amount of spin and media management will paper over that. And it's not just the vaccination program. It's it, The federal government is virtually ruining everything it touches. And there's a great divide that is appearing between those governments that are competent and those governments that are not. Yeah, exactly. E- exactly. I, th- I think the pandemic, I think it's showing the federal government's like bringing out. Bill Shorten presented as a very competent leader. He, he did all the right things. He, he ran what I thought was a, very good campaign. He surrounded himself with competent ministers, often women, Penny Wong and uh, uh, Tanya Plibersheh and, you know, articulate, smart, whereas the um, Scott Morrison hid his cabinet and and ran a fairly lacklustre campaign. When it got down to it, it was some local issues in some local seats known as pork barrelling that got him over the line. I think Bill Shorten was a bit ahead of his time, and that's often the way it goes in politics too. Uh, But now I think that Scott Morrison is behind the times. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech, or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very, very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It helps keep our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in, and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.